Let me ask this question. How many of you have a difficult child? Boom! <laughs> Hand went up pretty fast. How many of you, if you don't have a child, you did have a di difficult child? Yes, okay, sweet. So we can see where it comes from then back there. I love this quote by Mark Twain. He was once quoted as saying, when kids are 13 years old, put them in a barrel and nail the lid shut and then feed them through the knot hole. When they are 16, just go ahead and plug the knot hole. <laughs> and as funny as that is, and as true as it may seem for all of us, we don't have to have a 13-year-old. We don't have to have a 16-year-old. Some of us have an 8-year-old or a 9-year-old or a 6-year-old that seems, oh, or a Steve, you know, too. <laughs> Guys, as funny as that is, surely, surely I think the next generation should be given just a little bit more credit. I mean, here's the thing, too. After all, every single one of us in this room was at one time a teenager or a small child, right? Every single one of us have done that. And we were probably no different than the kids that we, oh, these kids are hopeless. The world's going to pieces because we're entrusting it to them. Guys, we all know what it's like to have no one believe in us. No one give us any shot of making any sort of impact or difference. And I think by and large, we've done that with some kids in our lives these days. Ah, they'll never be anything. They'll never impact anything. In one of the most emotionally revealing moments in Scripture, we are given a completely different picture of the relationship between a father and a son. In Mark chapter 1, Pretty familiar story, verses 9 through 11. It tells the story of Jesus' baptism. It says, one day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. And as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said this. I don't know if you've ever caught this before or thought about it in this way, but he said, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. I want you to catch what is so significant about this exchange between Jesus the Son and God the Father. The Father affirmed the Son not for anything that we would typically use to define success. I mean, Jesus didn't get an A on a test, didn't do really well in temple class, he didn't get a trophy for soccer or baseball or basketball or any other sport. It wasn't because he was rich. It wasn't because he was successful in business. Why in the world was the father pleased with the son? It was a very simple reason. He was pleased with him simply because he was obedient to his father's word. I, I love those words. I, I, I love you and you bring me great joy. I, 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 have a, I have to ask myself and I have to ask this question. When was the last time that you said those words to your son or your daughter, your grandchild, or any child for that matter. I love you, and you bring me great joy. In so many words, God the Father is saying to Jesus the Son, I believe in you. We gather this morning, guys, as a result of that moment in Mark chapter 1 and a chain reaction that was set off in over 2,000 years after the ministry of Jesus, and it all started... And all continues to go today because a father believed in a son. And it's my belief that one of the most important things that we can do as a church is to continually mentor the next generation. 
to expand our influence, and to invest in them. And the greatest way that we can make that happen is by creating a connection between church and the home. Equipping, supporting, encouraging families to carry the gospel of transformation to the world. But as we talked about last week, Satan wants to take us off track in that pursuit. More truthfully, he wants to take families off track from a single-minded devotion to Christ, a home centered on Christ. And that's why Paul gives us these words in Ephesians chapter 5. We continue to walk through that today, and here's what he says. Once ye were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in worthless deeds of evil and darkness. And I love this part right here. Don't, don't, not just don't take part in them, but instead expose them. Expose the dark with your light. Be careful how you live. Don't live as fools, but live as those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. And last week we talked about walking in love and how it plays itself in the, out in the life of a family. And this week I want to talk about what Paul talks about here in Ephesians 5. He continues his encouragement by calling his readers to walk in the light. You see, here, here is what I believe so often happens in the life of someone who is trying to follow Christ. We, we start with really good intentions. We, we start with all the passion in the world to follow after Christ. But then things start to crowd in and close in on us and distract us from our single-minded devotion to Christ. And before we know, we have slipped from white-hot passion and standing in the light to living in the darkness. And what's even scarier about that is that we oftentimes become very comfortable with living in the dark. It starts to feel good, and, and we adapt to a very different lifestyle. I mean, how many of you have ever done this, or how many of you have done this yourself, that you try to read a book in the dark, or you walk in on somebody and they're reading a book in the dark, in low light? I mean, what, what does it look like when someone attempts to do that? I mean, they have to hold the book like awkwardly close, and they have to kind of squint, and they have to try to, to make it work. But here's the thing, they're able to do that because the eyes have the amazing ability to adjust to the darkness. We have the ability to adapt to different environments that we are not necessarily made for. What's even more alarming is that we become comfortable with operating in a setting that we're not made for. You don't believe me? What happens when you offer to turn on the light for that person who is struggling to read that book? What do they say? Oftentimes, oh, no, 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 that's fine. I don't really need the light. I'm good here. Guys, how many of you have seen a documentary on deep sea creatures? You ever turn and get... I don't know, I'm just infatuated with those things. Like, these are some really weird animals. And I'm, like, I'm not talking about animals that live just a few hundred feet deep. I'm talking about ones that live deeper, like several thousand feet deeper, below the surface, where there is no light at the bottom of the ocean. I have some examples this morning for you. The first is, I just, I mean, could you imagine bumping into that bad boy? I, no, it's called a frilled shark. Frilled sharks never come to the surface. This one actually did. They can grow up to 15 feet long. And again, they live several thousand feet below. How about the next one? He's a beauty, isn't he, right? It's the old fang-toothed fish. I mean, it's pretty aptly named, right? That's what you would name that thing if you saw it. But the next one, this guy is really 
That one would scare me the most. I could probably hang with frilled shark. I could probably hang with fang-toothed fish. This is called a vampire squid. And I don't know if you can see it very well, but do you see what's in the middle of that guy's body? A gigantic eye. Now, I can't even put into perspective how gigantic I think. Actually, that eye on that squid is the proportionally the biggest eye of any creature on earth. That is a massive eye in proportion to its entire body. And if, it, if I had a different picture, if you could see up at the top of it here, it actually kind of opens up these webs here. And it's just, ugh, it gets gross. I don't, I don't want to talk about that anymore. I don't want to look at it. Just go to the next thing. This is called the Pacific Viper Fish. Like, how many of you have ever seen Finding Nemo? I'm pretty sure you know that little one where it's completely dark. And that has like, like the little light. And they're like, oh, it's so cute. And then, whoosh, I think that's a Pacific Viper Fish. Guys, Aside from being some of the ugliest and most horrifying creatures on the planet, every one of these creatures that we have looked at this morning has something in common. They have all learned how to live and adapt to the dark, to be comfortable in the dark and at these extreme depths and in pitch black darkness where there is no light at all. Not only that, but most of these fish in marine life are completely blind. They can't see anything. They have to rely on artificial light known as bioluminescence to even navigate the watery depths that they exist in. But what is possibly the most fascinating feature is that they have become so accustomed to this unnatural setting that they live in that when they're brought to the surface and they come up, guess what happens to them? They die. They can't even live in the natural world. They can't even live in the natural setting that all other fish and marine life do because their bodies are so used to it, to that pressure of the ocean when you bring it up. This is really gross. I actually read into this. So here's what happens. Like, evidently they have a sack in them. And when you bring them up to the surface, it makes that sack, like, get regurgitated out of their mouth. And they die. Lovely, right? It's what you wanted to come this morning for, I know. Some of you, that's all you're going to be doing the rest of the time, just thinking about a fish throwing itself up. That is, just, you know, so... Back with me now. Here we are. But on a more serious level, guys, there are so many who have become accustomed to living and walking in spiritual darkness. That's what Paul talks about here in Ephesians chapter 5. They become comfortable with the status quo, what everyone else is doing, going with the flow of culture that they have stopped walking in light and they have learned to live in darkness. But as those who wish to live for Christ and to lead our families to Christ, that's not how it's supposed to be. In fact, 1 Peter 2.9 has this to say to us. You are, you are not like that. You are not like the others that he's just been talking about. You are a chosen people if you choose to follow Christ. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he has called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. 1 John 1, 5 through 7 says something very similar. It starts like this. This is a message that we have heard from Jesus and we now declare to you. God is, what's that say? Light. That's his nature. There is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but we go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Guys, the most important thing that we can do as parents, as leaders of families, is to impart spiritual life, to impart light into our homes, to the next generation, 
And here's what I think has happened, guys. We have bought into the lie that our goal in life with our families and with our kids especially is to raise happy, well-educated, moral, independent kids. I mean, most people, when their kids grew up and they had those things, people would say, that's a success. I won. I did it. Guys, we've bought into the lie that our goal are those things, guys. Our goal are not those things. Our goal is to lead our families into a passionate and personal relationship with God to create a dependence on God alone. Our priority is to lead children away from us, to lead our children away from the culture and the world that we live in and towards God. That's our purpose. That's success. Guys, don't buy into the lie of what culture says your family needs to be or what it means to be successful, but lead them into the truth of what God says your family needs to be. We talked about it last week, to be imitators of God. What Paul says this week, to be light shiners, to have your home be a place of light and to be guided by the Spirit. And here's the truth of it, guys. If your family has more, if your family has all the great things in the world, if your children have more than you had, don't we all kind of want that secretly in life? Don't we say that to ourselves sometimes? I just want my kids to what? To have more than I did. To have better than I did. And if our kids and our families have more than we did, but they don't have more of Christ, what good is it? What good does that do us? In the end, all that matters is the level of our relationship with Christ. We're called to unleash single-minded, devoted, Christ-centered world changers for and to the glory of God. So we cultivate a generation, and not just one generation, but we cultivate generations who know who they are, whose they are, and why they were created. There's a couple of verses tucked away in the Psalms that speak of King David's desire to impact the next generation. In Psalm 71, verses 17 and 18, he says this very interestingly. Oh God, you have taught me from my earliest childhood, and I constantly tell others about the wonderful things that you do. And now that I am old and gray, do not abandon me, oh God. Let me proclaim your power to this new generation. Your mighty miracles to all who come after me. You see, at his core, David seems to be saying to God, God, let me live just a little bit longer so that I can tell the next generation about your power and your goodness and your might and your glory and splendor. I've seen it. I've tasted it, your goodness. And those who are coming behind me, God, they don't quite see it yet. God, give me a shot. God, give me a second chance. God, let me at them. Let me live a few days longer because I want to exist, David says, to help those who come behind me know just how good you are. And the question I have this morning is a very simple one. Are our families seeing the goodness of God through us? I mean, think about that one for just a minute. Chew on that for just a bit. Are our families... The children that God has entrusted us to, the the wife or the husband that God has given us, are they seeing the goodness of God through us? Now, I gave you a bit of homework last week. I asked you on the car ride home last week or to the restaurant to ask one of your family members how you could be less selfish in your relationship with them. This week, here's my homework. Here's my, my car ride challenge, if you will. Ask this question to one of your family members. What is the biggest threat to joy and peace in our home lately. Not only that, how in the world can we eliminate that and cultivate more of the fruit of the Spirit together? 
essentially just boil it down to this. How can we better walk in the light? Not just me as an individual, but how can I lead the other people in my family to also walk in light? Because in my mind, there is no better way to walk in the light and to help families walk in the light than to partner with the church and for the church to partner with families. And I said it last week and I'm going to say it again. Although parents and family are the most important influence in a child's life, here's the truth, and I think you know this. I know this myself. You can never do this. You can never accomplish the great task that God has given you to disciple and to lead your family alone. I mean, is there anybody in this room that says, you know what, I've got this thing all figured out. Don't need anybody else. Don't need any other voices. I can do this on my own. I didn't think so. I don't think I would find a single person in this world that say, you know what, I got this. I'm a pro. I'm an expert. Don't need anybody else. Guys, you need somebody. We all need somebody. Or in this case, we need some bodies to lean on. And that's where the church comes in. Not to supplant the family, not to reduce the family, but to supplement the family. Guys, here's here's my thing for this morning. I think the perfect formula is two things. Church plus home. You can't have one and not the other. As one church plus home supporter says, for all their specialized training, church professionals, ministers, youth ministers, they realize that if a child is not receiving basic Christ-like nurture in the home, even the best teachers, even the best curriculum at church will have minimal, will have short-term impact. Once-a-week exposure simply cannot compete or substitute for daily experience where personal formation is concerned in the family, in the home. Guys, to help quantify that just a bit, I want you to consider this. This this blew my mind when I read this statistic. Can you guess how much time the average church has to shape and impact a child's life in a given year? Any guesses? How many hours? Huh? 32. 32, just a smidge higher. 40 hours. And this is kind of a graphic if you can see it. Up here, it's it's a page out of a book that has just a few dots here and there to represent that there's really not a whole lot of hours that a church has to be able to shape and impact a child. It's kind of pretty hit and miss, honestly, sometimes. Do you know how often or how much time a parent has to shape a child's life over a given year? Exponentially greater. We go from 40 hours to the next slide, and here's what it looks like. 3,000 hours. Guys, I don't know about you, but just stop there for a minute and look at that. It makes perfect sense. This is not to negate the importance of the church. But sometimes what we do is we take and we say the church is the most important thing. If we can just get the kid to the church and we can just drop them off and they can just teach them all this great stuff, guys, it doesn't work. We've got the equation backwards. They are spending about that much time at church over a given year in relation to this much time in the home. 40 versus 3,000 hours. And here are some very important statistics I want you to hear to go along with this. They did a survey of the likelihood that kids would become active and engaged Christ followers as adults. And I, I want you to just listen to these numbers. If a kid just went to church and it was just the church alone that was pouring into a kid's life, guess how many percent of those kids would grow up to be active Christ followers? Any guesses? 6%. 
Guys, that is frighteningly low. For the way that the church is run most of the time, it says the church is super duper important. Just drop your kids off and we'll just make them into good little boys and girls that love Jesus. 6%. That's it. I mean, like bump that up a little bit. I'll give you 10 more percent. That's only 16%. That's still horrible. This, these next three really fascinated me. If you connect a mama and the church, so you're getting some of her home and you're getting some of church, guess how much that goes up to? Any guesses? 15%, that's it. How many of us have been told over life, you know what, if you can just get mama, and mama brings the kids, all is good. 15%. Listen to how this jumps. Guy, especially for guys, I'm talking to you right now. Dads, if you don't think that you are incredibly, vitally important to a kid's faith formation, listen to this. 6%, 15%, you know what happens when you have a dad and the church partnering together? 55% of those kids are likely to go on to be active Christ followers. 15 for mom versus 55. That's not to negate that moms are not important, but guys, for so long we have taken a back seat and said, you know what, guys really aren't important. We're just kind of dumb and stupid. We don't know anything about this. We don't know anything how to raise a kid. It is critically important for the dad to be involved. If it was just the dad and, and the church, 55%, you know what happens when you have the dad and the mom and the church all partnering together? It goes up to 72%. You see where we've come from just church alone at 6% to 72% of all three of those are partnering together. Guys, we are giving ourselves a much better shot of shaping and forming children if we have the home and the church coming together and partnering most people would think that the greatest impact is churches on families, but the exact opposite is actually true. And while churches can and should be a support and encouragement for families, healthy, Christ-centered families have far more of an impact on churches. Again, guys, the right formula is, is actually pretty clear. Church plus home equals transformation. Now, I know somebody will say, they're like, no, come on. Like you're, so you're telling me like a home that has just one parent in the church. I'm not saying that, guys. Statistics are what they are. They don't tell the whole story, but they tell a pretty good story. Church plus home equals transformation. And that's why I believe it's very important for parents to welcome other voices. The right ones, but outside voices are necessary. You are the most important voice as a parent or a grandparent, but you cannot and you should not be the only voice. You guys know something called white noise, right? That you hear something for a long time and it really, really annoys you, and then after a while, what does it do? It just goes into the background. You don't hear it ever again. The same thing is true of our voice in the home. Like We don't want to think about this, but guys, we kind of become white noise sometimes. What we say in the home needs to be supported elsewhere. And there's no better place for that than in the church. One of the best illustrations of this concept is the Old Testament concept of the family. Did you know that the family back in the Old Testament is very different than we see the family today? Parents, adult siblings, adult siblings, children and grandchildren, their own children and grandchildren, they were all part of the family back in the Old Testament days. They were all part of the family unit. In fact, it wasn't unusual, it wasn't uncommon for a family to include upwards of 80 people 
or more. Alvarez's, they got you beat back in the Old Testament. <laughs> Guys, it was, it, it, was, it was less of a family. It was more like a tribe. It was more like a clan of many people together pouring into the lives of the next generation. Do you, what does that sound like to you guys? It sounds to me a whole lot like the church. Guys, family is so much more than just a small unit. It's a larger web of relationships that all depend on one another to support the spiritual growth and development of the next generation. In fact, the New Testament example of this is found in the life of, of Timothy, a protege of, of Paul. You remember his story, don't you? We're told this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. No, we don't. We don't have that. So guess what? Gonna have to use this thing right here. 2 Timothy 1, 5, 6. Give me a moment. It's a coming. I promise it is. I need the Jeopardy music right now. Dan, can you make that come up? 2 Timothy 1, 5, and 6. He says this. I remember your genuine faith. Paul is talking to Timothy. For you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice. Do you, do you see what's going on here? Generational impact from, from grandmother to Timothy. And I know that that faith continues to be strong in you. And that is why I remind you. Do you, do you see what's happening here? We don't just have Lois and we don't just have Eunice. We also have another voice coming in here, Paul. It says, I remind you to fan, the flame, fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. And then in a very familiar verse in 1 Timothy 4.12, he says this to Timothy. Paul, this is like one, if, if I could kind of pull one of the top three or five things out that Paul says to Timothy, this would be one of them. He says, don't let anyone, anyone think less of you because you are young. Be an example to all believers in what you say in the way that you live, in your love, in your faith, in your purity, as you walk in the light. This is Paul saying this to Timothy. I mean, I, and here's what I believe that we get, is that Lois and Eunice spoke into young Timothy's life in a very powerful way. He was, he was the man that he was. He was a young man that he was because of those two ladies. But did you catch who else is speaking into Timothy's life the whole time? Paul. And what God did in this web of relationships was to use Paul as a supporting voice, as another voice, just as the church can and should be for all families. And here's the thing that I believe about this. I don't think that Paul said anything different to Timothy that Lois and Eunice didn't say to Timothy. But you know what? He said it from a different perspective. He said it from a male's perspective. And that simply sounded different than grandma or mama could say, could say it. He said it in a fresh way. Timothy heard it in a fresh way. How many of you have sat at home and endlessly told your kids something? Do this. Don't do that. I need you to believe this. I need you to believe that. And what eventually happens to the kids? And it was so offensive. What do they do? They go out and they find someone that they really look up to. And that person tells them the exact same. I mean, you could almost write it on a script and they could say the exact same words. And they, what do they do? They come home and they're like, you will never believe. Do you know what so-and-so just said to me? And all you can do is just shake your head. Because it is the exact same thing. They're just hearing it in a different 
way. Guys, that's why it's so very important that we allow the right outside voices to come into our home and to speak into our kids' lives. And at this point, I imagine some of you might be saying to yourself, Ryan, I am just trying to survive this thing called life and parenting and family. I'm just trying to survive. I'm trying to get my kids to and from school. I'm trying to get them to and from a soccer practice to keep them from being influenced by the world too much. Guys, do you know what the best way to be less influenced by the culture is? Less influenced by the world? To be more connected and more influenced and more centered on Christ. That happens in the home. When we pour our lives into bringing about change in our families, it not only changes us, but more importantly, it changes and it transforms the world. Let me ask you this, 15, 20, 30 years from now, how will you determine the level of success in raising your children and leading your family to passionately follow Jesus Christ? Guys, it's a monumental challenge because everything in this world is working against us. But here's the comfort. Even though the calling is large, God has given you everything that you need, primarily the church, a body of believers, a family, a tribe, a clan to support you and encourage you. And guys, the stakes have never been higher when it comes to leading your family. Listen to these statistics, please. Only 12% of church-going youth, church-going, active church-going youth, have a regular dialogue with their mother on faith or life issues, 12%. Only 5% of youth have those same conversations with dad. Only 9% have experienced regular reading of the Bible and devotions in the home. And only 12% have experienced a servanthood event with a parent as an action of faith, seeing their mom or their dad or both their mom or dad serving someone selflessly, only 12%. It's true, as someone has said, what we see in our family's faith is simply a reflection of our own faith. Faith. 